Hey, good morning. Welcome home. I'm so glad you're here. It's time for Children's Church. So split if you're young enough. Stay if you... You are? We card. All right. All right. We're glad you're here. Hey, if you have your phones with the free version Bible app on it, please boot those up and quiet them down because we're going to kick it off with a live event question. And we need your help on that. So if you've got that up, please do that. If you don't, you can still participate by answering this in your head. Here's a question that I want to ask. What is wrong with the world? What is wrong with the world? Now, you can answer that in as many or as few words as you want. Please know that all of these responses are completely anonymous, although we're going to project won't have any phone numbers or anything, and there's no way for us to track them back, even if we wanted to, which we don't. You just want what's on your heart, what's wrong with the world, you know? So if you are not participating on the phone, you participate in your head. This could be the world, your world, our, our, our town, you know, any way that you want to interpret that, what's wrong with the world. And, and uh, um, let's see, lock in your answers if we could. And survey set. Let's see. A lot of things. Okay, we're going to have to refresh this. I know I see more people, more people. All right, here we go. A lot of things. Big self, small God. That's wrong. A lot. God has been taking on nearly everything. Void of love, sin, selfishness, lack of faith. Everyone's becoming way too fragile. Okay, let's, let's refresh it one more time and see what we got. Okay, okay, that, that looks like good, good. Okay, so that's what we're talking about today. Um, we're talking about what's wrong with the world. When you want to know what's wrong with the world, what's wrong with your family, what's wrong with your relationships, what's wrong with your marriage, what's wrong with our town, what's wrong, you know, and how to fix it. And we're going to find the answer today at a party of all places. And the story of that party is in the book of Luke in the fifth chapter. So if you have your Bibles, please open them there. We're, we're in our Meant to Be series where we're walking through with Jesus um, the gospel of Luke to learn how life was meant to be. So um, we're in the fifth chapter. If you'd like to use a Bible but you don't have one with you, check under one of the seats in front of you for a brown hardback. You want to be on page 978 for that. Okay, we're going to pick it up. Uh, let me give you some background um, before we dive into the party. Jesus has just called Levi, who was also Matthew, who wrote the first gospel, called him away from his tax collector's booth to follow him. Now, to be a tax collector in those days was to be a real traitor, domestic terrorist, selfish scumbag. So um, it's, it's really, if you want, you have to just take my word for it, but if you want some more detail, go to our website, go to iTunes and check out the podcast from July 19th called Follow Me. We talk a little bit more about what it meant to be a tax collector. But suffice it to say that to be a tax collector meant to be viewed as a scum of the earth. And, and Levi can't believe that someone like Jesus would ask someone like him to come follow him. So Levi gets up and leaves all his wealth, leaves his old life, 
and, and goes to follow Jesus in new life. And he's not sad for his old life and, and all the things he's leaving behind. In fact, Levi is stoked. He's so excited about this new life in Jesus that he an epic party. He throws a huge party. And that's uh, where we pick this up. Um, we're going to pick it up in verse 29. Uh, if I uh, upset you today, please know it's because I love you. It's because I love you. Let's pick it up in verse 29. Levi made him, Levi made Jesus a great feast. And you're like, that's not upsetting. No, I know. It's a huge party in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. Okay, now, um, Levi is throwing this party. And the thing is this. He had two purposes for this party. One, celebrating the new life Jesus had just given him um, and, and, and being saved and all that. And, and to introduce all of his friends to Jesus, right? So he invites all his tax collector friends. Why? Because tax collector friends are the only kind of friends he's got. When you're a tax collector, the only people who want to hang around with you is other tax collectors. It's like being a Justin Bieber fan, right? The other believers, that's all you got, baby. Okay, you got us. So <coughs> there's that. So he invites all these friends, and he's trying to you, you picture that Levi is trying to introduce all his crooked tax collector friends to Jesus. He's like, Eddie, Eddie, come here, come here, come here. Um, Eddie the Weasel, like you to meet Jesus. Uh, Jesus, uh, this is Eddie the Weasel. You know he's a weasel. Uh, you know that already. That's how he got his name. This is Jesus. This is Jesus. And, and you'll never guess who Jesus is. He's God. He's God. No, I'm not kidding. I'm not yanking your chain. This is God. The man upstairs just came downstairs. He's right here. You, you tell him. Tell him. And, and it gets better, Eddie. Because, get this, God doesn't hate us. God loves us. Tell him, Jesus. You need to tell him. Tell him. And he tells him. And again and again, Jesus is, is he's eating, he's drinking wine with these tax collectors. And, and these people who have never been invited into a, a significant love relationship until they made this, uh, I mean, since they made this life decision to become tax collectors, are now being invited into a love relationship with God, by God. That's like mind-blowing. And there's another group. Uh, that is also at this party. Um, they must have found out about it on Facebook and they crash it. It's the religious do-gutters, the killjoys, the, the Pharisees. And they are seeing this and they are not happy. Why? Because they think that no self-respecting religious person would be caught dead in the same vicinity, much less eating and drinking with, with uh, tax collectors. And, and they know Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah. He's claiming to be this religious leader. And, and they, don't, they, don't, they don't buy that. He's loving on them. He's eating with them. He's drinking. And they're, they just get more angry and angrier and angrier. And here's what happens. Verse 30. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled 
at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Why are you doing this? And they don't have the guts to say it to Jesus' face. So they go to his friends and they say this. Now, um, it says eating and drinking. In first century um, Israel, uh, in the Middle East, to eat and drink meant with somebody, meant more than you were hungry and thirsty at the same time. It meant deep relationship. So if we were to have meal together, if we were to break bread together at the same table, that meant we were, we were in deep relationship. So this had symbolism that, that I don't want to be lost on us. The best example in, in our that I can think of is the middle school lunch table. The middle school lunch table, right? Like, if you know in middle school who's supposed to be sitting at your table and who's not. Now, I'm not saying this is good. I'm not saying this is good. I'm just, just saying it is. It is. And if somebody new comes to your lunch table that, and they're welcome there, that means that they have achieved a new level of relationship and friendship and acceptance. So here's the question. Who's at your table? Like, like we're just going to pause. Who's at your, I mean, your kitchen table. Who's there? Because, like, if you're a Jesus person and you're here this morning, you want to see the Holy Spirit, like, really use you in epic ways. Get some people around your kitchen table who have been roughed up a little by life, who are not followers of Jesus, and just ask them to share their story. And God will show you ways that he wants to use you to bless their lives in ways that you have never dreamed. But the the Pharisees, getting back to them, they're furious. They're furious that, that a religious leader like Jesus would eat and drink with pe- people. Excuse me. I'm getting something. <clears throat> I'm afraid. Um, who are looked down at tax collectors and sinners, the lowest of the low, the most despised. And so that you can feel what the Pharisees might have been feeling as they get angrier and angrier. It's maybe like what we might feel. If we saw Jesus, if, if any of you are news watchers who live in the state, then over the last days and weeks and months, even the last three years, we've seen a guy that most of us have, have an easy time despising, right? What if um, after the guilty verdict, um, what if after the sentencing, um, we saw Jesus get up um, the galley with the, with the families of the victims and walk over and give this guy a hug. Take a look. If he did that, if he walked around over and just put his arms around this guy, that is um, James Holmes, who three years ago uh, did the horrific evil thing slaughtering 12 people and and wounding 70. Take his face down. Like that, it, now, just, just go black, yeah. But what if? And I, I can see a lot of you thinking, that's not the same thing. It's not the same thing. Okay, I'll, I'll give you that. I'll give you that. It's a different, 
It's a different kind of thing. But how would we feel about Jesus if Jesus showed up at the ESPYs? Um, kind of did a Kanye West and walked on stage when he was not um, not asked to and gave a hug to this person. Caitlin Bruce Jenner, right? What would we, what would we think? Okay, bring that down, please. Because um, some of you are getting mad. So let's move on. I just wanted you to know what the Pharisees might have been feeling. You don't understand. You don't understand. These people are what's wrong with the world. And by eating and drinking with them, you're saying they're okay. Maybe that's not what he was saying. Maybe that's not what he was saying. Pharisees are looking down on tax collectors and Jesus and his followers. These are people. Or what's wrong with the world, right? And they're saying this to his disciples. And look what happens in verse 31. Jesus answered them. Now, he's, they're talking behind Jesus' back for a reason. Like, Jesus is on the other side of the room, and he answers them. This should freak them out. He's like, dudes, um, this is nothing. I can read your thoughts. No, you can't. I just heard that, okay? You know, that's, that's Jesus, right? And so he says... Here he says, this is the reason why you're on the outside of the party looking in. This is the reason why you don't have this joy. This is why faith doesn't work for you. This is why, um, this is why life isn't working for you. He says, look, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come to call, I have not come to call the righteous, but to call sinners to repentance. So maybe you and I have never thought of it this way. But in order to come to Jesus, in order to be called by Jesus, in order to respond to Jesus, we all need to be this. Take a look. Sick, bad, and loved. Sick, bad, and loved. And loved. That's what he's saying he came for. He said, I came to call. I call those I love. I didn't call the well. I called the sick. I call the good people. I call the bad people. And guess what? You're loved. So come. So I can make you well. So I can make you healed. So I can make you glorious. So I can make you me. What I created you to be. That's what I want. That's what I want. And we like that love part, but not so much the sick and the bad part. And it's not that Jesus doesn't love the Pharisees. He does. It's just that the Pharisees aren't willing to be sick and bad. They're not willing to admit that they're sick and bad. So that raises the question, doesn't, what does Jesus do with, doesn't he love and call the good people? That's a good question. We're going to get to that in a minute. But first, let's do this. Let's say you're an athlete and, and, and you, you have a horrific injury. Right? You get one of those compound fractures, God forbid, where the bone is sticking out of the skin. You've seen clips of that, right, on, on TV. Um, it's gross. What do you do when you have a compound fracture? You immediately, you go to the hospital, right? You go see a doctor. It's obvious. But what if, 
as might be the case, I pray that it's not, but it may be that somebody in this room has a malignancy, has cancer growing inside them undetected and unsymptomatic right now. Well, what do you do? Well, you don't know, so you don't go. You don't go. And so the thing that is killing you continues to kill you until it takes your life. Because you don't know and you don't go. That's the difference. The people with the compound fracture are the tax collectors. It's just obvious to them and to everybody else how sick and bad they are. And the Pharisees are more the people with the hidden malignancy. It just goes on and on. They're no less sick. But because it's not obvious, because it's not external, they're not willing to go to Jesus. Tax collectors and those of us who know the extent of our sin, we know that we're sick. We know that we're bad. I also want you to know that you're loved, that you can come home. That's what the gospel is all about. That's what Jesus is saying. I came to call. I came to save. I went to the cross for the sick, for the bad, and became your sacrifice, your substitute. I put your sin and your sickness and your badness on myself, although I had none of my own. And I paid that to reconcile you, to heal you. You see, church is supposed to be a hospital of sorts where people come to see Dr. Jesus who heals them. And even the people who work here are the patients, right? And he sends us out a little better and we bring more sick people and he heals and we go out. But that's what it is. We're all sick and we're all bad and we're all loved. And Jesus is saying that neither the rebellious rule breakers in the tax collectors nor the religious rule keepers of the Pharisees. That's not to me. It's through repentance. It's through surrender, love-fueled repentance. Can you be sick, bad, and loved? Not only can you be, you must be. You must be to come. And it goes on. Pharisees are still not buying it. So uh, they change subject and they're going to pick on somebody else who's the problem with the world. Verse 33. They said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. The people you're hanging around with, the people who follow you, they're partiers. They seem to think there's something to celebrate all the time. And Jesus, again, they're looking down that other people is what's wrong with the world. First, the tax collectors are too sinful for Jesus to be hanging out with them and loving on them. Secondly, Jesus' disciples aren't religious enough. Which is it? You know, it's both. They're saying, but yours eat and drink. And by that, they, and, and, and now, again, other people are the problem. Jesus answers them in verse 34. Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bride and groom is with them? While the bridegroom is with them, rather? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And they will fast in those days. But look, their, their rescuer, their savior is in their midst. That is reason to party. 
Now, when I could take it away from them, they'll, they'll mourn and they'll fast. But wait till you see what happens when I put my spirit in people. Woo! Yes, it's time for celebration. But they're not in on the party. They're not in on the party. And, and, and they're on the outside looking in because they don't recognize Jesus as their rescuer, as their savior. So there's no reason to celebrate. Doesn't this strike you as odd? I mean, if you just think about what we just read through. I mean, the people who had the most biblical knowledge, the people who had been in church the most, the people who had made an obsession of their lives with, with conforming to and obeying every small rule and commandment of God are the very ones who miss God with the flesh. The very ones who miss completely Jesus. And, and, and really, not just this story, but if you read the Old Testament, if you read the Gospels and, and, and the Acts and, and the letters to the churches, if you read it, a lot of those stories don't turn out as you would expect. The people on the outside become the people on the inside. And the people who think they're on the inside are the people who are left out. By other, by other words, I'm, I'm, I'm saying that the people who've lived lives who are almost sure they're disqualified from a love relationship with God are being welcomed in by Jesus. And the very people who are almost certain that they have lived lives that have made them cool with God are finding themselves outside of the family. As others have said, um, the bad boy is saved and the good boy is lost. Wow. Well, that should be very comforting for those of you who feel like you have lived a life that has disqualified you from the grace of God. He's saying, no, you're the very, very people that I came to save, that I came to rescue, that I came to give new life to. And it should raise very serious concerns for those of us who, who feel like we're, we're on it. We're doing a whole lot better than, than the people who are really screwing this world up whether they be in our family or in our neighborhood or in our town or in our college or in our world. Those of us who think comparatively to other people, we're, we're nailing it, more or less. If God's going to grade on the curve, we're in, baby. That should raise serious concerns about us because that's where the Pharisees were. And the people who were nobodies become Jesus' best friends. And the people who thought they were somebodies become Jesus' enemies. Here's a crazy part. We think it doesn't apply 2,000 years later. We, we think we don't roll that way. Why? God hasn't changed. Human nature hasn't changed. And that's the frightening part. And Jesus goes on and tells them a story, a parable. Verse 36, he told him a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment, puts it on an old garment. If he does, he'll tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it'll be spilled. And he's saying, it's not good to spill your wine. Okay, and the skins will be destroyed, but the new wine must be put in fresh New wineskins. And no one after drinking the old desires the new. Nobody wants a change. Nobody wants a change. For he says the old is good. 
world's better. Moral of the story is, you don't change, you don't get any wine. I'm only partially kidding. Jesus is at a party, there's wine being served, there's wine being enjoyed. And so he uses wine as, uh, as, as an example, as a teaching tool. Back in the day, they did not use wine bottles. Or for those of you who are younger, boxes. They didn't put their wine in boxes. Um, <laughs> they used skins, like leather skins. Uh, you may have seen them. And what he's saying is, if you use old wine skins that have already been stretched out, that are already brittle, okay, what happens when you make wine is um, typically it's grape juice, but any juice that has um, residual sugar in it, right? Um, when you introduce yeast to that, uh, it, yeast eat the sugar and, and produce two things. One is they convert sugar to alcohol, okay? The other thing is that when that happens, CO2 is released. I know this. I, I make wine as a hobby. So I, I, and some of you are going, you're a pastor. <laughs> Jesus did it, okay? First miracle. Made more wine than an elephant could snort up. For a re- wedding reception of people who were already hammered. I'm not doing that. Just making some wine. So I know of which I speak. So the yeast eats the residual sugar transfers some of it into alcohol and, and emits CO2. So if you put this in an old, brittle wineskin, it's, it's asking it to be a balloon, which it cannot be. And so what you have is a wine bomb, really. If you do this in a bottle that's not created for that, they could explode. So what he's saying is you've got to put it in a new, supple, soft, expandable wineskin. If that is true of wine, how much is more is it true of us? That's what he's saying. Remember, we laughed when I said, if you don't change, you don't get any wine. That's true. Because really, at the deepest level, the wine in this, in this parable is Jesus. And the new life that he comes to live in you and through you. And a lot of us have been wanting that without wanting to change. We want everybody else to change. We want our spouse to change. We want our job to change. We want our neighborhood to change. He's got, no, no, no. I'm going to make you the change agent, but to do that, you've got to change. And the people I'm going to send you to are the people who repulse you right now. Okay? But you can't hold that unless you get, let me give you a new you. Then I can put that in. Jesus, has ne- his bag has never been, I want to put my new life into your old life. I want to pour myself into your old life. Is I give you new life that can hold me. Otherwise you start bursting and spilling and making a mess and you and I know what that looks like. You and I know what that feels like. For some of you, it feels like being a tax collector. The only joy you get is in running away. For some of you, the only joy you get is very little because it's dry obedience 
to something that you think either God's going to squash you like a bug if you don't do right, or he's going to give you everything you want if you do. Neither one is true. He's saying, look, my children, the ones that I love, you are sick and you are broken and you are bad and you are loved. You are loved. So for those of us uh, who are church people, who are Jesus people, how do we know if, um, if we're becoming pharisaical, right? How do we know that? Number one, here's a tip. How upset did you get when you saw those pictures and you thought about Jesus loving people who repulse us? How upset did you get? Number two, the Holy Spirit will always work in us. There's a big church word called uh, sanctification, which just means God moving in and renovating us to make us into what he created us to be, more in his image. That will always trend towards humility, never pride. Never pride. So I have uh, three mathematical equations. We'll do those real quick, and then uh, we'll let you get out of here. These will help us understand this. Uh, Okay, here's the first one. Yes, love and mercy does not equal approval. Love and mercy does not equal approval. This is the the thing that chapped a lot of us. If, If we saw Jesus hugging that masked murderer, that does not mean he approves of his behavior, that he approves of his sin. It just means that the heart of God is so big that no matter how much somebody has, has run from his presence and, and gone the polar opposite to what he would have people do in loving him and loving each other, he still sees the young man, the young woman, the old man, the old woman, the person that he created to be a vessel for him to reflect his glory. He loves that part. Okay. Love and mercy does not equal approval, which on the flip side means you are free to go and love and be merciful don't you think one of the, to, to the, to the people that, 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 that Christians typically reject, love them. Be merciful and kind to them. It does not mean that you approve. Don't you think that's what the Pharisees were saying? If you love on these tax collectors, they're going to think it's okay to be a tax collector. The Spirit of God is the one who convicts. He says, they know. They know what they are. And love, my kindness, is going to lead them to repentance. I'm not looking for people who are worried so much and trembling about being punished. I want people to come in love because they know my love for them. God, kindness leads us to repentance. But his people, you and me, We think it's the exact opposite. No, scolding does. Scolding does. We're going to remind people of their sin. Uh, The cross, the gospel that we proclaim, that is our very life, was meant to separate us from our sin. 
Okay. Uh, are you saying you're not going to call sin, sin? Absolutely. Be relentless about calling sin, sin. In yourself first. Because if I am relentless about that, then the way that I call sin, sin in you, so different. So different. Why? Next one. Next one. Following Jesus isn't moral superiority. That creates pride toward self, judgmental attitude toward others. Don't need that. Run the third one. Following Jesus is deep, continual repentance. That's calling sin, sin. But for ourselves, in ourselves, that creates humility toward self and compassion for others. Do I always live this out? Absolutely not. In fact, I told you, um, if, if you hang around here, in January, how I messed this up incredibly. But that's the call. If we're relentless about calling sin, sin in our own life, then if my brother Tim has something, then my, my desire for him is healing and restoration. It's not busting him, right? And I'm not going to go, as I have often done, not the Tim, but with a finger pointing, but with a pleading saying, man, man, I am a fellow sufferer. I am broken and sick in some same ways. Come, come with me to the healer. Come with me. That's what it does. Can you just take a second? Look, if I ask that question, what's wrong with the world outside of a church setting, do you know that our, our, our names as a group would show up on a lot of those lists. It's those Christians that hate everybody. It's those Christians. And I'm not saying that there's coming a day when, when all society will applaud us for following Jesus. All I'm saying is that if we live this way, if we live this humble way, this loving way, this merciful way, how many more of our friends and family and neighbors might be kneeling next to us in humility than they are now. I don't know, but I sure want to try. Because that's what God's kind of pressing on me. So um, we, I asked you what is wrong with the world. That wasn't my question. I stole that. I stole that. Um, in the early 1900s, the London Times newspaper um, printed that question for their readers. And uh, one of my favorite authors, G.K. Chesterton, if you don't know him, get to know, well, he's dead, but get to know his works. Um, the Man Who Was Thursday, uh, it's free on the internet. You can read it. It's, it's just an adventure kind of mystery thing. I think you'll really like it. But he writes, he's a, he's a lay Catholic um, theologian, brilliant, brilliant humorist and, and mystery writer and G.K. Chesterton reads in the London Times the question, what is wrong with the world? And he wrote this short letter back in response. Dear sirs, I am, period. Sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. What's wrong with the world? I am. What's wrong with my family? I am. What's wrong with this town? 
got to be me. What's wrong with this church? I am. I am. And I'm going to take care of that. And Jesus can use me to serve and love others, both who say I am and those who say somebody else. Somebody else. So we met a couple of groups of people at this party, and maybe you relate to the tax collectors. Great hope. Great hope. Maybe you relate to the Pharisee. Great hope. Great hope. We have a wonderful Savior who through his cross, through his love, has made a way for both the rule breaker and the rule keeper to come home. To come home. But we have to admit that we're bad. And we have to admit that we're sick. But why? Romans. Romans 2.13. I just, look, here's why. Um, the next, just this scripture, uh, Romans 2.13, if you got it. I will summarize it for you. That's okay. Basically, he says that none of us, none of us is ever going to be justified by keeping the law. For it is not the hearers of the Lord over there. I know, it's not 2.13. Uh, no. For no flesh no one um, okay I got the wrong reference I'm sorry but it's saying that none of us none of us by keeping with the law will be justified and, and and so for you and for me that's saying that we all got an F on being good enough for God so why do we spend our time arguing with each other about who got the lower F are you tracking with me? Do you know how foolish that looks to a, a perfect God? The difference between me and that guy. The difference between me and that guy woman. Who had the lower F? Who had the higher F? Who cares? It's like the person with pancreatic cancer and the other person who has congestive heart failure, standing outside the hospital, arguing about who is less sick. And then there is a voice that comes and breaks through our argument that says, Dr. Jesus is seeing patients now who will come. I will. Because I'm sick. And I'm bad regardless of what it looks like to you. Some of you say, amen, amen. And my friend, I say this in love. You are too. But there's great hope. Now this invitation isn't for somebody else. It's for me. This is for you. Jesus made it right. Let's come. Get new life. Be made new. 
repent deeply so that you can be loved deeply. Let's pray. Lord, I just, uh, I want to humble myself. I thank you for being a beautiful and, uh, and a great God. Lord, I know that the life of comparing to other people just creates pride or despair, neither of which you want. Lord, you just want repentance. You want us to come running as desperate people. Lord, the door or the passageway before the cross kind of says this is only for the spiritually and morally bankrupt. And I think I and some of my friends are hesitant to walk underneath a sign like that. That is me. That is us. So Lord, if you would just give us uh, the courage to stop running, to stop trying to find life in making new rules for ourselves and breaking all the other rules. We're trying to find favor and superiority by keeping all of them. Lord, both of those are enemies of grace. Come. Come to us who are sick. Come to us who are broken. You've called us because you love us. Uh, during this response time, I'm going to be sitting.